Assurance of Pardon is sponsored by Logos Bible Software, the most advanced Bible study tool for both ministers and laypeople. Available on iOS and Android for phones and tablets, as well as on your Windows or Mac computer or laptop. Get the most of your time in the scriptures with Logos Bible Software. For more information and 15% off your next Logos package plus five free ebooks, visit assuranceofpardon.com slash logos. Now on with the show. Welcome to Assurance of Pardon, the podcast about the gospel, the Bible, the church, what it all means, and why it all matters. I'm Scott Davis, pastor of Hope Presbyterian Church in Hot Springs, Arkansas. And I'm Gage Jordan, lead pastor of First Presbyterian Dyersburg in Dyersburg, Tennessee. Gage, uh, glad to be back after uh, uh, taking a, a little pause from our, our Jesus in the Old Testament series to talk a little bit about some hot button issues, uh, not hot button issues, but just um, we had felt a, a desire to talk about the, the the problem that we often face of seeing that something has been done badly or could do, could be done badly, and therefore just avoiding that thing altogether. And so we had a good talk. And if you didn't, if if any of our listeners didn't have a chance to listen to those. Go back and listen to our previous two episodes because we had some uh, good conversation and we got some good feedback from our listeners around those. And if you can think of some other things uh, in that in that vein that you would like to hear us uh, talk about, then uh, shoot us an email. But Gage, this morning we are uh, back in the Old Testament. And uh, before we hop into the book we're going to talk about today, I want to remind our listeners that Assurance of Pardon is sponsored by Logos Bible Software, which now has Logos version 10. And we are in talks with Logos about getting somebody from Logos uh, on one of our episodes to talk through some of the great features that are in the Logos Bible Software. I just upgraded to version 10, and the coolest new feature I want to tell folks about is that we've always had uh, the ability to buy ebooks through the Logos shopping cart. And the cool thing about buy, having a book in your Logos library is then it's all automatically cross, cross-referenced. And so I can search. So if I want to type in the book of Esther, it's going to show me every single book in my library that's in that, that has Esther in it. Well, now Logos has the ability to, if you have Logos version 10, you can scan the barcode of printed books that you have already bought. And it will, and if it's a book that is in the Logos ecosystem, it will put it in your Logos library. Huge game changer. Immediately puts more of your library uh, into play as things that you can use. So that's just one of the really cool features. So um, check out assuranceofpardon.com slash Logos to learn more about that. Gage, where are we in the Bible today? We are going to be picking up in Esther, uh, the book of Ex- Esther. So super excited about that. Uh, hopefully you've had a chance to listen to um, our other episodes on seeing Jesus in the Old Testament, uh, but we, uh, a few episodes back, uh, knocked out Nehemiah. That was super fun. Uh, but now we're going to be digging into Esther this morning. So just to kind of give us a background of where we've been and where we are and where we are in the history of um, redemption uh, when it comes to, to Esther, uh, Esther is actually set about 100 years after Babylonian captivity. So let me kind of help connect some dots here. Um, you remember way, way back, and now over two years ago when we started this podcast, one of the first episodes we talked about was 
poorly uh, used verses, right? Philippians 4.13 and Jeremiah 29.11, right? We've talked about Jeremiah 29.11. If you've ever been in one of my classes, I've talked about this when we talk about context. That's the passage where it talks about another plans I have for you, right? When it's talking about 70 years of Babylonian captivity. Well, at the end of the 70 years, people went back into the promised land to build the city and to rebuild the temple. That's what Ezra and Nehemiah are about. However, not everybody went back. There were some people that um, had... Um, gotten so involved in seeking the welfare of the city and and being a part and just assimilating into the culture that they were a group of Jews who remained um, in in Babylon and in Persia. And that this story about Esther is set in the context of a group of Jews, uh, the people of God, who um, who were actually in Susa, which is the capital city of the Persian empire. And so that's kind of the background. That's the setting. That's where we are in the history of redemption and, and what's going on on there. Um, so there are some main characters in the story that we want to identify. First, there's the King of Persia. Um, and this dude's kind of a drunken mess the whole time. Um, and, and, but he's a main character in the story. There's Esther, obviously, for whom the book is named. We don't know who the author is. It's anonymous, but we know that it's about Esther. Uh, we M- know the much whole- much speculation around the fact that it, it very well could be Mordecai. Um, but um, but yeah, we don't we don't know. That's right. We're not told. That's right. Yeah, and we're not told really because in this case it's not not as relevant. Like it would be that Paul wrote a letter to Ephesians, right? That would be that would be necessary to know. So. You have this this story. Uh, you got the king of Persia. You got Esther. You got uh, Mordecai, um, and then you've got Haman. And Haman's kind of your antagonist. He's the villain, and we'll learn more about him there. So, interesting fact about the book of Esther: this book of the Bible doesn't actually mention uh, the name of God at all. Um, right. It's it's more the focus behind it is God's providential hand involved in the lives of the people. Um, and so what do we mean by providence? Well, let me let me give you some definitions. As Presbyterians, uh, we would use the Shorter Catechism to give us a definition of providence. And so Shorter Catechism, question number 11 says this, what are the God's works of providence? God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing of all his creatures, and all their actions, right? So we see God's providential hand involved, even though we don't see God actively speaking and and appears not to be present. We know that that's not true because God is everywhere. But this is a great example of like often in our lives, God is is at work even when we can't see. John Piper says it this way, that God's doing 10,000 things at one time, and we're aware of about two of them. And so <clears throat> as we enter into chapter one and two, just to kind of give you some ideas of what's happening. Uh, the king of Persia uh, throws a party. Scott, you had some thoughts? Yeah, I just, want to, I just want to tell our listeners that the book of Esther is a lot like the book of Jonah in that it's a pretty short book. I've literally heard pastors do an overview sermon of the entire book in one sermon because it is one story and you can sit down and read it just in one easy sitting. So go ahead. That's right. Yeah, nine chapters, about 
three or four pages in your Bible. So picking it up in chapter one and two, um, the king throws a party. Now, this isn't just like he's throwing a little party. Scott, this is a party that lasts 187 days. Let me just put that in context for you. There are 365 days in a year. Thank you. And the king is partying consecutively for 187 days of the year. Um, so the best equivalent, this is this is the the Great Gatsby before the Great Gatsby was cool, right? Yeah. Like if you if you remember the Great Gatsby, uh, Gatsby throws a party every single night. Throws a rager in the Roaring Twenties during when you know alcohol was illegal. He throws a raging party every single night. And why does he do that? Because he wants uh, his long lost love who lives across the way to see uh, how amazing his lifestyle is and, and come and fall in love with him again. So here the king throws this party for 187 days because he wants you to know how awesome he is, right? So why else would you throw a party? And so he throws this party. Uh, and on the last day, on the 187th day of this rager, right, he um, calls for his wife, uh, Vashti, to to come and, and hang out with the friends and, and be a part because, you know, um, Vashti's pretty and he's wanting to wanting to say, hey, look how smoking hot my wife is. And so, like, he he, he invites her in. Right. Um, and so. Um, she refuses to show up. Well, that goes over like you would expect it to. And that leads us into how we're going to meet Esther. Yeah. And in fact, lest anybody think that Gage is, is, is using a little hyperbole about why he invites his wife to come to the party is it says, um, to, in order to show the peoples and the princess, her beauty for, she was lovely to look at. (laughs) That's it. That's it. Uh, and then we get in into chapter two, because obviously when you refuse to do something that the king wants you to do, we all have read these stories. We know what happens, whether it's King Arthur, whether it's the drunken king of Persia, whether it's the 300. Like if you refuse the king, you get killed. This is the way this works universally, whether, whether there's kings everywhere. Right. Uh, so, you know, before before it was cool for King Henry VIII to do it. Uh King of Persia is doing it. He's off, off with right. their head, off with their head. And so then we enter into what my, my good friend Jay Sari calls the worst episode of The Bachelor ever. <laughs> <laughs> and so <laughs> in response of finding a new queen, the king then does what any normal person would do, right? He he decides to go on a series of dates. He maybe downloads an app or two, swipes left, right? No, that's not what he does. He throws a beauty pageant for a year. Of course he does. <laughs> you know? Um, and hey, listen, by the way, it seems like a long beauty pageant, but this is the guy who throws six-month parties. That's so right. That's it, right. It only, it only yeah. stands to... Re- beauty pageant's normally a, a couple days, and so, yeah, that's it. Makes uh, sense. Yeah. I'm no, tracking ta- with you. That's it. So he takes it to its nth degree, um, you know, un- unlimited... unlimited rest and, and and chicken nuggets for all for all the the ladies um and so they're hanging out for a year and then he um during this time esther is one of the ladies in the beauty pageant and she she has hidden her her beauty because she's trying to kind of wait for the big reveal she then reveals herself and voila she, he is obsessed with her and so 
as he's she wins the beauty pageant she she's miss miss persia and and isn't she wonderful miss persia is sung and she's paraded everywhere and so sash that's it flowers just you know she slays and so um as this is happening um there's mordecai mordecai is like this this advisor friend relative of esther's and um he also is close uh with her and he happens to just be in the the king's court when he overhears i guess these guys were were you know team vashti they decide they want to kill the king uh, and and I'm, I'm I'm unfolding the story just so everybody understands. I'm unfolding the story first to then answer and help us see where Jesus is in the story because I think sure. we need to understand the story and then go back and do this. So this is what we're doing. So as he uh, Mordecai overhears these two guys that want to kill the king, they um, apparently aren't weren't as stealthy as they thought they were. So Mordecai tells Esther. Esther then goes and tells the king, and M- Mordecai. Uh, gets the credit for saving the king and and things go go well and that leads us into chapter three enter now the villain Haman um, so here's the thing you need to know about Haman that's really really important he's not a Persian he's actually an Agagite now what does that mean um, though they were the original Canaanites so you remember when God rescues the people from Egypt and he uh, is leading them into the promised land. What do they have to do? They have to defeat everybody that's in Canaan in order to enter into the promised land, right? That's how we met Rahab. That's, you know, we got Joshua and Caleb and all that fun stuff. We covered that in a previous episode, uh, previous episodes, because we also did one on Ruth. And so the thing you also need to understand, so that, that gives you a little bit of context about these are people that were disposed by the people of God out of their land, and so they don't like the Jewish people. If that weren't enough, First Samuel 15, remember we did an episode on First Samuel, First Samuel 15 tells us a lot. It's actually a really crazy story that helps us understand what's happening. So God sends Samuel to Saul in first Samuel 15. And he tells Saul, Hey, um, when the people of Israel were leaving Egypt and they were entering into the promised land, the Amaleks did not, um, help them. They actually got in their way. They actually were, um, hateful to them and harmful to them. I didn't forget that because I'm God and I don't forget things. So I want you to go destroy all of them, everything, lay it, lay it to the ground, right? The women, children, animals, the king, everybody. Now, that seems kind of crazy if you've never read the Bible, but that seems also to be kind of the pattern every time God tells the people of Israel uh, to destroy their enemies. Why? Because if you do not destroy all of the enemies, it it always comes back to bite them, right? It always comes back to bite them, that they don't take do exactly what the Lord told them to do. And so, Saul then goes and he does a version 
of what God told him to do, which is what we do as people, right? Like God tells us, hey, I want you to worship this way. And we do a version of that. And then we don't understand why things go well, don't go well. We God tells you, hey, I want your church to look like this. And we do a version of that. And we don't understand why things don't go well. Um, God gives you commands and we do a version of that. that we don't understand why we're more stressed out and anxious and, and sin is wrecking our lives. Because when God, yeah, because when God tells you to do something, he does it for your good, right? Amen. So, so God providentially knowing what's going to happen in Esther tells him, tells Saul all the way back, Hey, destroy the Amaleks, right? It's not what he does. He destroys mostly of everything they have, keeps all the spoils for himself. He tries to couch it like, well, I kept the good lambs so we could sacrifice to God. That's not what he's going to do with it. He he wanted more power and, and property. Um, and then he doesn't kill the king. He just brings the king into his court. Um, and so fast forward, Samuel shows up, says, hey, you didn't do what God told you to do. God actually, oh, well, I, I kept the animals because we're going to sacrifice. No, God desires, and he's going to repeat this over and over and over again. This is a theme of the Bible. God desires obedience over sacrifice. God's less interested in how fancy your church service is and more interested in you doing what he's called you to do. Point blank period. He's not interested in the smoke machines and the skinny jeans and how great your band is. He wants word, prayer, and sacrament. Like God's more interested in your obedience than he is um, in your in your sacrifice. And so Saul then tries to argue. And then th- this is, I mean, this is like mafia. Hold on a love. second, Gage. Yep. Hey, guys, can y'all cancel the smoke machine? Yeah. Yeah, no, God doesn't want that. Okay, go ahead. That's Sorry. Right. Sorry. That's right. I, I, uh, well, well, you know, tech do, crew. Do what you need to do. Uh, you know, at this point, Scott, you know, um, I don't know that we can fit in skinny jeans either. That's also the reason that we 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 don't need to do that. They should only be called skinny jeans if you're skinny, right? Like uh, just period. Yes. Like, yes. yeah, that's right. So in that, Samuel um, is dealing with Saul. Saul is isn't repentive. He's just guilty. So he's sorrowful that he got caught. He's sorrowful that the, the God that God's now going to take away his kingdom and give it to David. So he's chasing after Samuel. He rips his robe to dive diving for him and kind of begging and pleading. And Samuel says, Hey, the way you rip my robe is the way God's ripping this kingdom from you. I mean, just savage stuff, man. Just like mafia level to, you know, if you ever watch tombstone, the movie, just the great quotable moments. And he, and he tells him, Please, you know, please reconsider, please, you know, give me another chance, yada, yada, yada. And Samuel says, hey, no, the glory of Israel, which is God, um, doesn't regret things. He's not like men that have regrets. When he makes a decision, he makes the decision. And this is the decision he's made. Um, and then the next thing that Samuel has to then do is, is I mean, it's unreal. It's chef's, chef's kiss. Like, he calls Agag, the king, into uh, his presence, and the king's like cheerful. It says he cheerfully walks into Samuel's presence, and Samuel tells him the the bitterness of death must be past, huh? Which is his way of saying, "Hey, your whole people got slaughtered, and apparently that doesn't bother you at all because you're just worried about yourself." Uh, the way in which you have caught by your sword called women to be childless, your mom's not going to be childless. I mean that that's like that's the thing. People think the Bible is boring. It's not. You just gotta gotta read some some of the quotable lines. Listen to what he's saying. The way in which you have destroyed babies, right? 
which is what abortion does. The way in which you Amen. have destroyed babies, you're going to now be destroyed. Um, that's, I mean, that's that's unreal, right? That's that's like Denzel Washington level, just cutthroat, right? Why does that matter? Because that history is what drives Haman's hatred of the right. Jewish people. Okay, he's not just hating them just because they're Jewish. There's history behind it. There's there's connections, and so that leads us into chapter uh, four because at the end of chapter three, Haman puts a plot together and a decree that he wants to kill all the Jewish people, and he's he rolls the dice to figure out what day and time he wants to do it. Literally, right? Um, and so that and it, it and it's called a pure right. He rolls the dice, so he rolls the pure to figure out. Um, what what day he's going to kill him? <laughs> and so, chapter four, Mordecai and Esther figuring out how to kind of get out of this situation, and they devise a plan that they're going to go talk to the king. Now, here's the thing: you can't just go talk to the king without an invite. Um, and so, if you go and just run into the court without an invite, you're going to be killed. And so, Esther is trying to figure out some sort of easy way to have a have an invite. Uh, and then finally, she just decides, I'm just I'm risking it. If I die, if I perish, I perish, right? And this is where the famous line that everybody knows about Esther that people like to use that I want to talk about for just a second. Mordecai actually, to try to spur her courage on, says, maybe God rose you, uh, has put you in power and put you in this position for such a time as this. That's the right? phrase, for such That's a the, time as this. For such a time as this is the phrase that we all love about Esther. Here's the thing, and hear me very clearly. The book is not about you being a go be an Esther. That's not what it's about at all. Do you know why? Because there's lots of things that Mordecai and Esther are getting involved in and, and doing that are actually uh, violations of God's law. But the Bible again is just telling you what's happening, not necessarily condoning what's what's going on. But but life is messy and this story is messy. So if you if you read the story and go, I need to go be an Esther, you're gonna miss the point. Right. That's right. That's right. This is the difference between uh the something I read in the Bible being prescriptive or descriptive, um, being narrative or didactic. Is this prescribing this, telling me go and do likewise, or is this showing me something that these people did in this time, in this place? When we mess that up, obviously, we go looking for the Philistines that we're supposed to slay. That's right. Or all of it, right? It's it's the hero placement. Where's the hero in the story? If I'm the hero in the story, then I've got to go be a better David. I've got to go be an Esther. I've got to go be a leader like Samuel or whatever, right? And so chapter five, then um, Esther decides the way she's going to get there is she's going to host a banquet. So she hosts a banquet. And at the banquet, she gets Haman and the king drunk and says, hey, I'm going to throw a second party tomorrow. Um, and I actually got something I want to talk to you about. So Haman um, drunkenly sloshes out of the, the the first banquet and he sees Mordecai and he's angry and he hates him because he's a Jew. And so he's, he's he makes this decree that uh, we need to build a stake. Um, this, in other words, this, let's say, for example, this tree, this cross looking like tree, this stake on which Mordecai is going to die. See, see where I'm going with this. So then, um, the chapter six, the the king can't sleep 
And, you know, as we all do, he turns on, he, he does his version of turning on the History Channel to try to help him sleep. He asks somebody to come read to him the oracles of the day. What basically read the minutes of what, what has happened in the, in, in the annuals of his, his kingdom so he can actually sleep. And it's while they're reading the annuals that he, he remembers, because remember, he's drunk most of the time. He actually is sober this night. And he remembers that, okay. Mordecai actually saved my life and I never thanked him for it. So as Haman wakes up the next day and thinking that he's going to put Mordecai on a, on a stake, instead the king says, hey, Mordecai saved my life. We're going to throw a parade for Mordecai. So I want you to put him on a horse and I want you to parade him around, around the city. I want everybody to be able to cheer how great Mordecai is, right? Uh, so that then leads us into chapter seven, the second party. Right, so the second night, the second party, and here's the plot twist. At this party is where Esther says, "Hey, I got to talk to you about some things. Number one, I'm Jewish, and so is Mordecai, and so are all of my friends and family that are part of this community. And Haman has executed this decree that all the Jews are going to die on this day at this time with this thing, and particularly he wants Mordecai to die on this stake on this tree. Um, so then." The thing about a decree is because king's words are definite and they can't go back on their words. Otherwise, they would seem like a weak king. You can't reverse a decree. So instead of having um, just saying, hey, never mind about the decree, they have to have a second decree. And so the second decree gets an act. Well, and there's another little plot twist that I think is 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 literally sitcom comedically funny mm-hmm. is uh, Haman, the villain. um the king calls Haman in and says, "Hey, Haman, I uh, what do you think I should do if I really wanted to show honor to someone? What 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 what, what do you think I should do?" And Haman thinks, "Oh, this is about me, That's right? True. This is yep. about me. He wants to show me honor. He's asking me what I want for my birthday, right? This is what he's doing." That's right. Uh, and so this is in this is in chapter six. So Haman came into the king. King him, King said to him, "What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor?" And Haman said to mm-hmm. himself, "Who would the king delight to honor? Who, who would the king delight to honor more than me? Right? I can't think of anybody. I'm not a narcissist <laughs> at all." And Haman said to the king. For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head Mm. a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him... um, Proclaiming before him, anyway, he goes on and on, right? Uh, um, and so that's what Haman thinks is coming for him. Go ahead, back to your story. Yeah, yeah, and that's actually what what Mordecai um, is, is going to receive at this this parade. But but even in in all of that happening, um, Haman has this decree. They reverse this decree uh, because they have to enact a different decree. Right. And in this different decree, the king actually says, hey, Jewish people, anybody that has ever been your enemy here and tried to kill you or tried to destroy you, you now have full permission to destroy them. Go for it. Uh, That's wild. (laughs) 
that's like the purge, right? Like it's it's essentially just like, hey, go take care of all your enemies. You've got the king's backing to do so. Oh, and by the way, all of the things you were just talking about, Scott, the robes and the crowns and the position and the and the the birthday gifts, right? That now is going to go to Mordecai and Haman. That stick, that stake, that cross that you had for for Mordecai, boom, he's going to get placed on it. Yeah. Um, and so chapter nine then kind of gets into um, the detail by which all the enemies have been destroyed. Uh, and that cut where we actually get the um, annual Jewish feast of Purim, right? Because Rolled the dice, and then the uh, decree saved all the people from their enemies and saved them from utter destruction. Now, let's ask the question we've all been asking as we we bring this uh, to uh, a close and put a bow on it. What does this have to do with Jesus? If God's not mentioned in the story, what does this have to do with Jesus? Well, let's think through some logic here. If there are no Jews, there is no Jesus. There's that's that's huge right there. Right. If if they all get destroyed, there is no Messiah. So God is always working together all things together for our good. Romans chapter eight. Right. He has a plan to the same way that uh, we found out the at the end of Genesis, what people men meant for evil. God actually means for good. And he is going to preserve for himself his people to accomplish his promises. So there's no Jew. If there's no Jews, there's no Jesus, right? Right. The second thing is God's intricate providence of how every single time that the enemies try to come against the people of God, God rescues them and puts them in the right place at the right time for their preservation. Um, that that's true, and that's the psalmist talks about that continuously. That the enemies gnash their teeth and then they melt away. That the enemies can't stand us and then they get destroyed. Like that's that's a constant theme that God is going to protect us from all of His and our enemies. Um, not only that, but the 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 foreshadowing, right? That yeah. it's actually. Esther's willingness to sacrifice her life for the sake of her people, that is a picture of what Jesus actually does, right? Esther has to have the courage to possibly do that. Jesus, the true and better Esther, actually, actually does it. This is where this is where Keller's "What is the Bible basically about?" video is so helpful when he says Jesus is the true and better Esther, who not only risked losing her life in the palace but gave up the palace of heaven and gave up his life to save the people, to save his people. That's right. And so it is picturing, it is picturing to one who is royalty, who risked life, not Esther said, if I die, I die. Jesus says, when I die, I die. That's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. But not only that, Scott, we have the picture of Mordecai, right? This, this triumphal parade, of one that is that is saving his people, um, getting paraded in, in robes that he that he didn't uh, earn and crowns um, that that weren't actually his; they were somebody else's, right? And he gets paraded through the city uh, while by his enemies who who are trying for his destruction. Jesus instead, though, enters in to the city on a donkey. Right. And a crown of thorns. And he is 
given over to destruction by his enemies. Oh, so, oh, so they think until he raises from the dead. And so you see even in that picture of Mordecai and that praising and the parading on the horse through the city, that foreshadows what Jesus is going to do, being paraded on a, on a donkey and a colt, as prophesied by Zechariah, to go to be, to be hung on a stake, the thing That's that right. Mordecai doesn't have to do. Jesus actually does it. He puts himself on the stake for the sake of his people to rescue them from their sins. Uh, and then also you see this picture of the destruction of enemies that the people are rescued and then Mordecai is is placed at the right hand of the king to reign over his enemies. Guess what? That's the church. Amen. That 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 Jesus rescues us from the destruction of our enemies, sin, death and the flesh, uh and then seats a, us next to Jesus who's at the right hand of the Father that we may reign forever over our enemies. And Amen. so that we that we can then celebrate and advance the gospel that we're commissioned to give and 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 execute this glorious victory over our enemies and declare how the king is won. Uh, Brian Chapel in his Gospel Transformation Bible notes on this um, it, it says it really helpfully. He says it's natural to read Esther as a morality tale about cousins who stand in the gap to save a nation. As a consequence. Women may be told, be compliant and brave like Esther, and men are encouraged to be faithful and wise like Mordecai. We're all admonished, don't be proud like Haman, or you might end up on the gallows. But Esther is fundamentally a moral, but is Esther fundamentally a morality tale about how we should stand tall in the midst of our earthly captivity? Or is it a gospel message ultimately about our need for dependence upon Jesus Christ, our mediator, who himself stood in the gap and accomplished our deliverance. Well said. Amen. 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 We hope this is helpful. And if you have any questions about this, if this is the first time someone's talked to you about Esther this way, we'd love to dialogue with you. You can always hit us up on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. You can message us at assuranceofpardon.com, or you can email us at contact at assuranceofpardon.com. We'd love to dialogue with you. If you want more content like this, don't forget that we are a part of the Society of Reform podcast, um, and you can always find their RSS feed and listen to all the different variety of podcasts, or you can go to their um, website, Reform Podcasts, that's podcast with an S, dot com, and you can see all the different uh, podcasts for you to check out um, and, and dialogue with more content that sounds like this. Um, and we would, we would love to hear from you. Please don't hesitate to ever reach out. And until next time, Scott, this is Assurance of Pardon. God bless.